Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about advances in the treatment of metastatic cancers with Dr. Kieran Taraga. Dr. Taraga is Chief of Surgical Oncology and Assistant Medical Director of the Clinical Trials Office at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a Professor of Surgical Oncology. Karen, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you do. Sure. Yeah, I'm a surgical oncologist, uh, which means I'm a, I'm a cancer doctor first, um, and I'm also a surgeon. And I grew up in India, which is where I did my medical training, and uh, I spent now half of my life in the United States and half my life in India. Um, my, my journey in cancer surgery started when I um, met patients during my training in surgery who had immense suffering, um, and the suffering was, uh, was much more than I had ever wanted to see any human being go through. And I resolved then that... Um, I would dedicate myself to, uh, to working on cancer care, and, and that's where my journey has taken. It's also very personal to me. My grandfather died of cancer, and my father recently expired also of cancer. So, so I think it is something that um, is, is very personal and, uh, and motivates me every day. So, you know, Karen, when we talk about cancer, and on this show um, we talk a lot about cancer, um, you know, Oftentimes we 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 have kind of these two buckets, right? We have the buckets of early stage cancers uh, that oftentimes we talk about um, the fact that these can be cured. Essentially, many early stage cancers, when picked up really early, like early stage breast cancers, can be cured. Um, and then we talk about the later stage cancers. And it sounds to me when you were talking about your story that many of these patients who are suffering with cancer often have metastatic cancer, cancer that has spread. But that's not often the kind that we think about um, in terms of surgery. So can you tell us kind of the role that surgery plays in, in metastatic cancers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you, you, you know, framed this question very, uh, I think, both importantly and carefully, which is, number one, that there is a common misconception that surgery uh, may not have a role in stage four cancers. And so if you think about the history of how cancer therapeutics have evolved, in the past, we had no modality for treating cancer other than surgery. So in the early 1900s, um, all the way up to the uh, discovery of uh, chemotherapy, uh, surgery was the mainstay of treating cancers, and it was used for treating cancers which were both localized, which meant were early stage and uh, late stage. And then once chemotherapy came about and we understood that cancer is a disease that spreads um, throughout the body and, and you need treatments that are effective with uh, cancers that are spreading through the body, we, there was a paradigm shift where more treatments went towards using uh, what we call cytotoxic chemotherapy or chemotherapy that, that kills uh, cells um, which are dividing. The understanding that this is not always the case 
for metastatic or stage four cancer was a concept that was pioneered actually at the University of Chicago in the late 1990s, where a term called oligometastases was defined. And what this meant was, if cancer was truly spreading through the entire body, why isn't every organ and every part of every organ affected by the cancer? Why is it that it selectively goes to some organs and only in some locations in some organs, like the liver or the lungs or the lining of the abdomen called the peritoneum? And this brought about this whole concept of where when patients have stage four cancer, there is still the body's immune system that is controlling these sort of metastases or stage four spreads in different parts of the body. And and in conjunction with other treatments like chemotherapy or immunotherapy or endocrine therapy, you could actually combine it with surgical or ablative treatments like radiation or burning it with a needle to kind of enhance the survival of patients. And so in the early 2000s, when people started doing this, uh, more predominantly for colorectal cancers, which had spread, uh, we found that patients were actually cured with surgery alone. And in fact, the survival of these patients, which was which was much lower when they just got chemotherapy alone, had significantly increased once we were able to fold in treatments like surgery uh, in the treatment of these cancers. And so over the last couple of decades, our understanding of these tumors have evolved significantly, where we believe that surgery plays a mainstay role in the treatment of metastatic cancers. And as treatments are evolving even further, like immunotherapy or newer treatments, there is an increased understanding of where surgical therapeutics are important in facilitating some of these immunotherapies as well. So that sounds really hopeful um, that uh, even in patients who have had cancers that have spread, the combination of using chemotherapy or systemic therapies more broadly um, and surgery may actually improve survival. But is that only the case in certain cancers? You you mentioned that this was pioneered with colorectal cancer. Is Can this be used for all cancers or is it still limited just to a few? Yeah, I think, I think that's a very good question. And the answer lies in understanding the type of cancer. So in the past, we would only understand cancers as the site of origin, which means where they started from. So we would think of cancers only as breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer. In the last few years, we've certainly evolved in our understanding of how we think of cancers, and we bucket them maybe slightly differently based on their molecular profiles. And so combining the information of what we call the site of disease with the molecular profiles give us this this group of cancers that are amenable to treatments with surgical therapeutics. And predominantly right now, most of these applications in the treatment and cure of stage 4 cancer is limited to colorectal cancers, ovarian cancers, other cancers like appendix cancers, mesotheliomas, some stomach cancers like gastric cancers. But we just started a clinical trial, which is uh, challenging the paradigm of how do we treat metastatic cancers from some very rapidly aggressive lethal cancers like pancreas cancer, esophagus cancer, bile duct cancer, using these biological um, 
the biological information that these tumors have, understanding that there's always a group of patients that are different than all the conventional stage four cancer patients. And so I think, you know, there will be a widely applicable role of surgical therapeutics in many oligometastatic cancers, including lung cancers and uh, melanomas and other types of cancers. Um, it's just that we are in the process of trying to define who these patients are that would benefit the most from surgical therapeutics. And I, th I think you bring up a good point in terms of clinical trials. I mean, when you talked about this paradigm shift, uh, the first shift from essentially cancers being treated surgically to then the evolution of systemic therapy to now adding in surgery to the mix, it seems like at each junction when we move the needle forward, um, it's always on the basis of science um, and on the basis of clinical trials. So can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of patients participating in these clinical trials and perhaps uh, some of the apprehension that patients face and, and how you address it with them? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's a very important question. And I think, um, you know, having gone through uh, cancer in our own family and having seen it from the other side, you know, there is no question. It is very daunting to think about uh, adopting a treatment that seems at least um, in, in sort of the common understanding as being experimental. And many times I think, uh, there is this this misunderstanding that, um, you know, just because it's experimental, you know, that we're being treated as guinea pigs or this is not the right way of thinking about things. But what I will tell you, and I'll tell you a small anecdote and then maybe speak a little bit more um, specifically about clinical trials. But when I was a trainee, when I was working as a surgical resident, I took care of this young woman who had a young daughter um, who had metastatic melanoma. And it was, uh, we did numerous disfiguring surgeries. We gave her chemotherapy and I took care of her for a couple of years when I was uh, in training and she passed away right under my care. Um, it was, it was a very sad moment for all of us to see this young life lost. The, I, in 2016, I met almost an identical woman uh, who also had a young child who was also diagnosed at the same time, who had participated in the first immunotherapy trial and was alive, had presented to all of us doctors at that meeting about how well she had overcome her cancer and had um, uh, had essentially come to the other side of this. And, and it's just a very stark comparison of where sometimes our conventional treatments or treatments that we think you know, work, don't work as well. And so I think clinical trials should be thought of more as uh, an opportunity for hope. They are not always, you know, um, the most appropriate for patients. And so it is very important that you speak with your treating team to make sure that you're getting the right treatment. But I do think it's very important to keep an open mind to participate in these studies because as, as everyone knows, we haven't figured out all the answers to cancer. You know, we need to cure cancer. We, it's not enough to say, to tell a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old that you're going to live five years or 10 years. It's not. We have to tell 
patients that we're going to cure this cancer. And the only way we're going to do it is by advancing our science, being bold, and trying new treatments. Cancer patients are remarkably courageous. You know, they, they're willing to go through lots of treatments, and they're willing to put their bodies through lots of suffering and pain um, if done in the right way. And I think clinical trials are also protections for patients to make sure that these are being done in scientifically rigorous and appropriate ways that match the courage that they show. Yeah. And I think the other point that you bring up is that clinical trials are not always the last resort. Many patients sometimes think that they can only participate in the clinical trial if all else is lost. Um, But the point that I hear you making, Karen, is that, you know, for many patients, clinical trials actually offer the opportunity to get tomorrow's therapies today, the the therapies that we think are going to revolutionize care, that are going to advance the science. Um, those are the things that we need to test in clinical trials. And so sometimes patients can get that early on without it being, quote, uh, you know, the last resort. Is that right? I completely agree. I think that's that's a very important concept. And I would just highlight again the two very, very important points you made, which is number one, it doesn't and should not actually be the last resort. In fact, it's it's important to consider it even early on. And number two, that uh, it does allow in a very safe and controlled way for patients to have access to therapies of the future. I would say both fantastic points. Yeah. Well, we are going to take a very short break for a medical minute. And when we come back, we'll learn more about surgical oncology and its role in metastatic cancer with my guest, Dr. Kiran Turaga. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their survivorship clinic is available to educate survivors on the prevention, detection, and treatment of complications resulting from cancer treatment. SmiloCancerHospital.org. The American Cancer Society estimates that nearly 150,000 people in the U.S. will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer this year alone. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and men and women over the age of 45 should have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Patients with colorectal cancer have more hope than ever before thanks to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Kiran Turaga. We're discussing the role of surgical oncology in treating metastatic cancers. And Kiran, before the break, we were talking about the fact that, you know, heretofore, many people thought that metastatic cancer was a devastating diagnosis, that this was not... Uh, something where surgery had a role. It certainly was not curable. Um, and sometimes patients even believed that this was not treatable. Um, but we're really 
changing um, that uh, paradigm. Just a couple of questions. You had mentioned that you have some ongoing clinical trials looking at the role of surgery in metastatic cancer. Um and and really expanding the indications. So whereas this was uh, originally something that had been pioneered in colorectal cancer, it's now being looked at in more aggressive cancers. One question that perhaps comes to mind for some of our audience members might be, does it matter where the metastasis is or how many metastases there are? Does it make a difference if this is just a couple of liver metastases versus if this is widespread in bones, brain, liver, lungs, adrenal glands, etc.? Yeah, I think I think that's a good question and, and very important to clarify. The we don't fully understand the concept of what is oligometastases, which means what are the cancers that can be treated by surgical therapeutics or local treatments like radiation or ablation. So until we have very good understanding of that, the, the concept of oligo, oligo means few, is limited to patients who have metastases in just a few locations, which could be like the liver, the lining of the abdomen called the peritoneum, the lungs, occasionally the lymph nodes, and rarely the brain or the the spine or the bone. I think when patients have widely disseminated disease, which means that there's a large burden of cancer and it's spread widely to different parts of the body, those are much harder to treat with surgical therapeutics, and those patients are probably most often better served with either systemic chemotherapy, novel therapies, uh, such as those in clinical trials. Which kind of brings me to my next question. So we know that one of the things that really revolutionized cancer care was early detection, finding cancers at their earliest possible stage. So if it makes a difference in the metastatic setting, the volume of disease, are there ways for us to detect that early too? I mean, have we made any inroads into finding distant metastatic disease earlier when it's perhaps more in that oligo bucket than the widely disseminated bucket where it's more treatable? Yeah, I think, um, you know, this is a very, very exciting field for science and I think a very important field for patients to understand and, and certainly ask their healthcare teams about. We, as I'd said before, metastatic cancers by definition have the ability to spread. And in the past, we would only know of metastatic cancers once we found cancer spots either during surgery or when we got a CT scan or some form of imaging. And that's when we would know that the cancer has spread. The latest advances have been in trying to detect either cancer cells in the blood or even fragments of their DNA and now even further modifications of their DNA in the blood to see if we can identify cancers early. And this has been a remarkable finding because, for instance, when we think that a cancer has not spread, but we find a lot of DNA in the blood and it doesn't go away after surgery, we know that these patients will have their cancers come back quickly. We also know that many times when cancers are not visible on scans, you can actually pick up these cancers with uh, the DNA that's floating around in the blood. 
The other very interesting thing that we're also finding is that these DNA technologies are able to detect what we call mutations in these cancers. And so, you know, it's not a perfect analogy, but if you think about, say, an infection and you treat it with an antibiotic, there's two possible outcomes. One, the infection gets better and it goes away and it's gone for good, or the, the bacteria develops resistance and it starts mutating. So it actually develops resistance to the antibiotics. In cancer, what ends up happening quite often is when we're treating these cancers with chemotherapies or some form of treatment, the cancer appears to shrink or appears to get better, but then after you stop the chemotherapy or take a little break, the cancer tends to come back or recur. What these technologies are helping us do is actually find out the clones of these cancer cells that are changing and also allowing physicians to start thinking about how can we be much more personalized? How can we be much more directed towards the cancer so that we're treating it before it develops resistance to our chemotherapy? So it's a very, very exciting field. There's numerous different technologies that are involved, and we're utilizing some of these technologies to actually make decisions for patients that undergo cancer surgery, especially for oligometastatic disease. So uh, a few questions on that. One is, it, it certainly does sound really exciting. Um, and many patients may be wondering, is, is this something that is widespread? So, so first and foremost, this is incredible technology, but the basis of this technology, which, which occurred with lots of scientific revolutions that happened in the early 2000s and lots of patients who participated on trials, has allowed this to become quite widespread. So in fact, these are technologies through companies where patients can get these labs drawn at their own homes. They don't even have to come to a large academic medical center and these ctDNA technologies can be, can be used to identify the DNA in, in patients. In every cancer that's being tested in clinical trials so far, uh, most of the studies are positive, which means they're informing doctors and patients that about their cancer and cancer characteristics that are actually helping make very good decisions. So for instance, a lot of patients who have treatable colon cancer have their cancers removed and then they're given a standard prescription of chemotherapy, which they can get for many months and it can cause debilitating symptoms and side effects. And now using ctDNA, you can actually define the patient population for who longer courses of chemotherapy is important and those that can actually do okay with shorter chemotherapy so they can get back to their lives better and, and, and live a longer life. So I would say it's a remarkable technology. It has slowly become a little bit more mainstream, but it isn't completely supported by what we call level one evidence in all cancers. So it's not something that is well supported yet. I suspect it will be. With regards to insurance coverage for this, right now, fortunately, uh, because these are newer technologies and there is a lot of interest and investment in these technologies, many times these technologies are um, either covered by the insurance company or they're covered by the company that actually runs the test. So, so far, the patient portion of the expenditure has been minimal. Um, however, you know, just like everything else, um, you know, things are expensive and, and we just have to be careful and good stewards of the resources that we have. The other question that comes to mind as you think about 
the role of ctDNA is whether it has a role in screening. I mean, when you talk about ctDNA being able to detect cancers before they become evident on imaging in the metastatic setting, one may imagine that this may play a role in screening populations instead of instead of imaging. Do you see that as a, a potential uh, application of ctDNA or is that a little bit too far-fetched? You know, so growing up, I watched Star Trek. And, um, you know, it's always remarkable when you have a device or a wand and you can run it over a patient's body and you can find all their diseases and illnesses and potentially treat it. It's always very appealing to think of this concept of what we call non-invasive or minimally invasive ways of identifying cancers. And you're spot on in saying that the the true potential of these treatments would be of these technologies would be for us to identify cancers uh, at very early stage or even identify what we call precancerous lesions so before they become cancerous and identify it in the blood the so there's several technologies that are being evaluated in this setting and one of these technologies actually uses stool so you test the stool to see if there's cancer in the in the colon and that's one way of looking at it we have worked with a chemist at the University of Chicago, and we have a test where we can kind of look at patients and look at their blood and find polyps in the colon, um, but they're not 100% sensitive right now. And so from a population standpoint, they're not ready for prime time yet um, because they're expensive and they're big tests and they still don't give you the the results and the safety that you want when you have these sort of liquid biopsy tests. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in five or 10 years, um, just like when you go to your doctor and check your cholesterol levels or, um, or other health tests, you could get a liquid biopsy test that would, uh, you know, either predict cancer risk or would predict um, precancerous lesions. And then, of course, if there is cancer, detect cancer as well. So I suspect it will come in the next five, 10 years, but it's not prime time yet. Is, do you think that there's a role in terms of ctDNA for identifying the site of the cancer? So is it that the ctDNA simply says there, there is cancer or risk of cancer somewhere in which case, without really knowing much more about the cancer, um, might only lead to patient anxiety? Or do you think that we would be able to be more specific so that, you know, we would have targetable uh, mutations that, that we could treat and or know the site of origin so that we could um, develop imaging modalities that could pinpoint where exactly that malignancy is before it becomes widely disseminated? Yeah, another fantastic question. And I think just for, for the sake of the listeners, I just wanted to make sure that I elaborate on one point, which is that so first and foremost, all of us have some amount of DNA that's floating around in our blood. And that's from cells dividing, cells breaking down. And so there's always DNA that's floating around in our blood. That DNA is called cell-free DNA, which means it's DNA that's outside of cells. It's from dead cells and it's just kind of, you know, in, in the bloodstream. That doesn't necessarily mean it's cancerous DNA, but it means that there is DNA. 
Now, there are there is another concept called circulating tumor DNA, which we call ctDNA, which is where you clearly have a cancer, and it's the cancer that's producing this sort of DNA that's kind of floating around in the blood that you then identify and call it that. So, you know, in the question of where, sometimes when you have these cancers, which we call unknown primary, which means you don't really know where the cancer is or you don't know where the site of the location is, CF DNA, which is the circulating free DNA, can actually identify those cancers. And in fact, there's a lot of interest right now in using what we call epigenetic changes as well as tumor mutations to identify the site of disease. And clearly, I know of at least three technologies that are very close to either getting FDA approval or in the process of for use in cancers of unknown unknown origin. So I think it's a very exciting space. I think, again, I would say right now it, it can be used by doctors such as oncologists uh, in, in sort of very clearly prescribed settings to identify these. But I would say uh, not quite ready for prime time widespread. Dr. Kiran Taraga is Chief of Surgical Oncology and Assistant Medical Director of the Clinical Trials Office at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.